and welcome to the History Obscura Reading Room. Thank you for joining me once again. I am, of course, your host, Mandy Gardner. Tonight's reading comes straight from one of my very favorite books, The Utmost Island, written by Henry Myers and published in 1951. Tonight's episode is just the first of many in which I will be reading the entire book. This 214-page-long story tells the tale of one Leif Erikson, an intrepid Viking who was probably the first European to discover the far eastern shores of what would become Canada. This is a luxurious story of mythology, adventure, and, of course, history. But first, men like to call each other, my boy. It is more than a pretense that they are not growing old. It is a wistful echo of those very distant days many centuries ago, when it was taken for granted that boyhood never ended and old age never began. Boys could grow up then and still be happy, for they had no disquieting need to readjust themselves at maturity. All their new experiences would be merely new games with new names, such as money, or women, or weapons, or death. But games for all that, to be played by the rules that games have. The sky rests on the shoulders of four dwarves. They stand at its corners, holding it up, and their names are Nordri, Sudri, Austri, and Westri. A man told this to his little son about 975 years ago, one morning in Iceland. Today you tell a child such a thing, or would if it hadn't been so long forgotten, to make him eat his breakfast. But ten centuries ago, when we trusted our eyes, you told it to him because it was true, and he would have to learn it sooner or later. The year 977 was a good time in which to be six years old. People knew then that a mountain might really be a giant. They had not yet reluctantly concluded that a giant was only a mountain. The obvious, unquestioned wonders that you saw or thought you saw, were told to rapt son by rapt father, which indeed still goes on, though the wonders today are less amazing because there is less amazement. You tell me that fire is combustion. I prefer to think that fire is the god Locke, who also takes the shape of a salmon. It is I who seem to be right, because a leaping salmon looks like a leaping flame, and if you had argued with me about it in 977, I would have turned into a bear and killed you. That is to say, I would have gone berserk. I would have put on a bear's sark, oh very well, his skin, but it was wrong of you to forget the old words, and with his sark I would acquire his nature and bite and claw and rend and foam at the mouth until you were lying dead before me. 
whereupon my frenzy would pass and I would regain my human form. Of course, the little boy never doubted these things. They were exciting, which was always an excellent reason for believing. And they were told him by his father, which was another. When the fabulous words came out through the great, flaming red beard, they were twice believed by teller and hearer. Throughout his life, the boy thought the gods had red beards. None of it was denied by his mother, for the reason that he had none. Divorce was easy and childbirth difficult. Mothers were often lost, one way or the other. His father was guide and teacher enough, for he knew all about growing up, having just done it. Together, they visited the plain whereon the hero Hijalmar had been given his choice of fighting either Agantir's eleven brothers or Angantir himself, and chose the latter because he was the more terrible and there would be more honor in killing him. Come forth, Angantir! Come forth and fight! The boy shouted at anything that might be Agantir, with a changed shape. But the shadow or bush or fox knew better than to accept the challenge. His father smiled approvingly to see his son thus prepare for manhood, and his small person hungered for more such esteem. It was the last time and the last place, yesterday in the 10th century in Iceland, where we could be aware of that kind of world and have that kind of fun. There never was so right a spot for it, so by itself, so suited to be the final stronghold of wonder. The giants had built a surrounding wall of mist, with the sea for a moat to keep the world away. A boy might think of what lay beyond only because of the name of a place called Norway, whence his and other great-grandfathers had come or the bones of Irish Christians, whom those same great-grandfathers had found here and slain. Living at the tail end of an epoch that was about to pass, it was yet inconceivable that their life could ever be different. Any change, however slight, of custom, belief, or pleasure, seemed impossible, absurd, to be hooted at if any madman were to dream it. There was no premonition, no fleeting or uneasy vision, of the mighty transformation which was creeping toward them along the edges of Europe. Fate had not the heart to tell them that their dear and ancient ways would end, that the Middle Ages lay in ambush back of the horizon. The exulting berserk hero, singing mocking songs as he flung spears from his burning house upon the foes who ringed it, would be replaced by the knight errant, with his rules and niceties, his quest, his blessing, and his sword for hire. Their gods were going to die. He must learn to be a bonder, 
since his father was a bonder, it followed that he would be one too, and must know how to rule the farm he would inherit. If you can do that better than the other bonders, said his father, bribing him with a glittering future, they may choose you to be a king, and the kind of king they make you will depend on the kind of bonder you make yourself. You may be chosen folk king and rule certain districts, or sea king and rule certain ships, or host king and rule certain warriors. Then seeing a conceited king look spread over the little face, he hastened to add, But whatever kind of king you may become, you will be a chosen king and nothing more, and must ever vie with other bonders to prove that you are still the ablest with weapons, wits, and words. The boy considered these various kinds of kings, liked each in turn for the picturesque things they could do, and in turn wished to be each of them. He made up his mind at last to be a sea king, for the decisive reason that that was the kind of king his father was. That led to their playing a new game in which a certain ledge of rock became a ship, and he and his father the crew they both voted that he should be the Sea King and command the voyages which they imagined. He stood where the helm was said to be, managing a tiller of air and shouting orders which were obeyed without question, because a Sea King knows what he is about and everyone on board defers to his judgment. He began to speak of himself as the Sea King, both when pretending he was at sea and when he was really at home. Sea King became a nickname for him, or, as it was said then, an eek name, until it seemed he had never had any other. He behaved so as to make it fit him. The household began to take it for granted that he would be a Sea King indeed, exactly like his father in every respect, except that his hair and beard were going to be yellow, and he was a little more thoughtful. End of chapter one. Thank you for joining me, friends. Please visit patreon.com slash history obscura for ways to support the podcast and get yourself some fun new content. Good night. Good night.